Let me just say uh, briefly, we're going to start with prayer this morning. I want to tell you, uh, thank you for your prayers this week. It's been an interesting week. We, uh, I ended up in the hospital Tuesday through Thursday with um, what over the past few weeks has been a blood clot in my leg that is now apparently broken up and moved into my lungs. So multiple pulmonary embolisms. Um, I feel fine. I'm just kind of out of breath. So if I, if I get breathy this morning, that's why. But um, treatment for about three months. So it looks like um, in really good hands. I'm thankful for the hospital here and for everybody that I met. I c- cannot think of a single doctor or nurse that was not excellent. Excellent. And I'm thankful for our health care providers locally. Um, man, we, we should be grateful. We should be grateful. I, I am especially this week. And I'm thankful for your prayers this week. There's a, this next three to four weeks is a little bit sketchy um, as these clots break up, but they don't move somewhere else. So I would appreciate your prayers there because life's got to go on. I can't sit in a bubble and um, I got to ride my bike, you know, stuff like that. So that's just, I'm going to have to just deal with that. So uh, if you'll cover me with prayers, that'd be great. Pray this doesn't um, interfere with with what I'm called to do here. So, and um, let's start with prayer. God, we are thankful for, um, just thankful for your goodness and your mercy um, appointing us to this hour, really ordaining this hour, um, ordaining my um, preparation, my presence here for this morning to preach this message. I um, recognize that it's a divine appointment, and um, Lord, I pray that everyone here today will recognize it's a divine appointment to hear. Uh, We're not just getting our church on, but that we are actually hearing a message from you this morning that you have planned before you said, let there be light, that this moment was ordained. I pray that that'll add some depth and some gravity, um, some meaning, even beyond what maybe we have anticipated or expected this morning, that that we recognize that um, you're involved in our being here and you're planned it. Um, I pray for an attentiveness. I pray for a, um, a receptiveness as we hear from you that we will walk in what we've heard. Lord, I realize that what we're talking about today in some ways, really in every way, is about a gift that you give us. So I want to bathe this sermon in, in prayer before we even begin and ask you to give us more of what we're talking about today. Um, thankful for uh, the opportunity to uh, gather this morning. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another uh, minister in this uh, community. I want to pray for Jim Gatliff, uh, who um, oversees the Hunt Baptist Association. Uh, I'm thankful for Jim's years and years worth of ministry in this community. I'm thankful for the part that he plays in uh, a number of pastors' lives as a teammate to maybe a single pastor in a, uh, a church that he may be serving by himself in some ways or feel quite lonely at times and not have someone to talk with about pastoral matters, that Jim is that guy that serves as that teammate to so many pastors in our community. I'm thankful for uh, your call on his life. I pray for his family. I pray that he is blessed in his marriage and his family first and that he has ample uh, ministry uh, energy for uh, the many churches that he serves in our community. Thankful for the chance to lift him up this morning. Um, Lord, we turn this time over to you. We pray that you will be glorified and great. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God doesn't marvel at much. In reading just Bible to, you know, cover to cover, I just don't find occasions where God 
um, stops down to marvel at anything. It kind of makes sense if you think about it, because why, why would he marvel? He was the, the one who spoke creation into existence. He said the word and the earth teemed with life. He said the word and the galaxies were filled and populated with stars and even naming them by name. So the thought of him marveling is really sort of a strange thought and it kind of makes sense that you don't see God marveling at much. I have found though that God the Son marveled a couple times, at least. We know of at least two times in the scriptures where God the Son marveled. Now, he was there at creation. In fact, Hebrews 1 tells us that he was the agent of creation. That apparently God the Father spoke and God the Son, the Word went into action and did the creating. So it's hard to imagine him being wowed by anything. Yet, Jesus was wowed by at least a couple of things in his time here on earth that we know of from the Scriptures. The first of those two times when he was wowed or marveled was during his earthly ministry when it landed in his hometown, he marveled at the unbelief of his people. It must have been heartbreaking for him to be rejected by the ones who had literally had a front row seat to God in the flesh. We're not going to spend the morning on the first time that he's wowed in that case. We're going to spend the morning on the second occasion that I know of that he was wowed. The second time that I know of that he marveled is where we're going to spend our time today. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to have you turn just a couple other places this morning over the course of the sermon. But for the most part, we're going to spend um, our entire morning in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. You can find that in the Bible uh, that's in front of you, in the seat bottom in front of you, on page uh, 813, if you'd like to... um, turn there. I want to encourage you to do that because sometimes seeing something as you're hearing it as well will help you engage it in a way that's more significant than if you only hear it. And also, if you don't have a Bible here today, take the one that's in that seat bottom in front of you. You can have that. You can write your name in the front. You can underline things and make that that Bible your own. It would be a treat for us if you carried that with you home today. We're finishing a series of sermons that we've been in over the course of the summer on spiritual gifts. And today we're considering the gift of faith. When studying the gift of faith, and faith for that matter, we have a Bible full of things to learn about faith. So it was hard to figure out where on earth we were going to go this morning without offering some sort of... uh, um, endurance buffet, you know, this, this eating contest where we just stuffed ourselves on faith matters. I was led, I believe, instead to one story of a Roman centurion in Capernaum. This man that we're going to learn about in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. This man had apparently a faith that made God the Son, the agent of creation, marvel. So let's meet the characters. These first few verses introdu- introduce us to the main characters of this story. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5, 6, and 7. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. The main characters in this story that we're going to consider this morning is first of all a centurion, and second of all a servant, and third Jesus. 
want to share with you a little bit about centurions to help you sort of get acquainted with this guy. The officers known as centurions formed the backbone of the Roman army of antiquity. Very possibly from its conception straight up to the fall of Rome, of the Roman Empire. A centurion commanded a unit of about 80 soldiers and about 20 servants. So hence that comes out to about 100 and hence the term centurion. In legion there were 10 cohorts within a legion and a cohort had six centurions per cohort. The centurion's role was not merely administrative, but very much tactical. They played an active role in combat, leading their men from the front, and suffering a worryingly high casualty rate accordingly. In battles, the centurion was easily identified by the transverse crest on his helmet and the vine staff that he carried as a symbol of his authority and enforcer of discipline. Tacitus tells us of the centurion Lucilius, just sounds like a centurion, doesn't it? Lucilius, who, who was nicknamed Fetch Another by his soldiers because he would break a staff over an unruly soldier's back and then call for a replacement. Fetch me another staff. I guess fetch me another soldier too. But what kind of men became centurions? Vegetius, I'm not sure how you say that, that's a pretty funny name, writing from the 4th century, uh, lists these requirements for a centurion. The centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield, in short, for his expertness in all the exercises. He's to be vigilant, temperate, active, and more ready to execute the orders he receives than talk about him. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed, and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. A centurion required basic literacy, and at least several years of previous service seemed to have been another requirement. Most of these guys were veterans, having enlisted as private legionnaires in their youth, and they achieved the the centurionate at some point in their 30s or 40s. It's about a 20-year commitment to be a centurion. Supposedly, the emperor personally approved every appointee to a legionary centurionate. The modern historians Campbell and Dobson have calculated that one, one uh, one average, 90 new, on average, excuse me, 90 new centurions would have been appointed across the empire every year. And it's certainly within the realm of feasibility that the emperor could have had a hand in their selection. This tradition was, was a survival or survived one of Julius Caesar's customs. He was fond of promoting centurions on the spot after a battle as a reward for bravery. I appreciate you indulging me with those details because I really wanted us to get to know this guy. We don't have any details in the story itself beyond some ancient history. And I think that ancient history gives us some insight into this guy that to be a commander of Roman soldiers, this guy would have had to have been a stud. We're not talking about a softy here. We're talking about a guy that's quite accomplished, 
a guy that is revered and respected, not only among his men, but likely among everyone in the community, a manly man, a man among men, this centurion. Now, the, centur- the centurion's servant, we don't have a lot of details on uh, about either. But we can extrapolate and sort of move backwards from what we know about centurions and their commitment to understand likely the story on this servant. servant. See, a centurion was not allowed to be married. And a centurion, according to their code of conduct, were not even allowed to have a girlfriend. So it's likely that this servant, that this centurion approaches Christ about, was likely like a family member to him. He apparently had a tremendous love for this servant, and she, she or he was likely very dear to him. The third character in this story is Jesus. The centurion refers to him as Lord. That may be a good sign, it may be a bad sign, depending on how Lord is translated in the story and in the context. We know from this story that it's a very high and important translation. It can be as common as something that we might translate as sir, good sir. But it can be something as important as deity, where somebody refers to someone as Lord, as in God, Lord. We don't know exactly how he's approaching Jesus and how he's using that word Lord, but we know that he is at least referring to him with a strength of authority that's greater than his own. We know that much for sure. Now let me just point this out to you before we move on, in case you missed it. A Roman citizen, first of all, who happens to be a Roman soldier, who also on top of that happens to be a commander of Roman soldiers as a centurion, appeals to Jesus, a Jewish peasant. Now, we know he's more than that. But as far as this man knows, and as far as the context develops, a Jewish peasant, he appeals to a Jewish peasant in his time of need with the request, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, the translation is interesting. It says the word, just the few words that Jesus had read in my Bible. It says, I will come and heal him. Let me help you with some Greek translation here. We're not going to get into the Greek. I'm just going to help you see that, there, that this can be and probably should be translated a different way that changes Christ's response altogether. The Greek in this sentence is an emphatic Greek, and it suggests that this is not a statement, but instead a question. And it should be translated instead, shall I come and heal him? And it fits better with what, with what the centurion has asked of him, because it, it, so far it's even hard to even tell that he's even asking anything, anything. It says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. If someone approached you and said, hey, my servant is at home, suffering terribly, you might go, oh, man, bummer. That sounds like a bum deal. It's hard to know that it's a request, and it's fitting that Christ would respond then with a question. Shall I then go and heal your servant? Shall I, we might develop it a little further, a Jew, go heal your servant, Roman citizen, who also happens to be a Roman soldier, who also happens to be a Roman centurion, shall I, a Jewish peasant, go heal your servant? Now let's see what happens next in verse 8 and 9. The centurion replied, Lord, 
I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, Jesus' question, if we can sort of re-engage this, this statement that's translated as a statement and approach it as a question, shall I come and heal him, sounds familiar. It sounds familiar, at least his approach sounds familiar to something that he did later in the book of Matthew. I want you to listen to this story. You may jot this passage down. If you just absolutely need to see it, you can, or you can just listen to this story. It's in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman. Okay, let me piece the centurion together with the Canaanite woman for you. A Canaanite woman is not a Jew. Okay, I spent most of my life in church and just to literally sort out all the ites and the Jews and all that. Let me just help you with this. A Canaanite is not a Jew. Okay, a Canaanite may have been a Hittite, a Perizzite, a Jebusite. It's somebody that's not a Jew that's from the land of Canaan. Their family's from that area, okay? This woman is not a Jew, and nor was the centurion. The centurion is a Greek, as in not a Jew. So they're connected in that way. They're both what we would call, and they would have called in that time, Gentiles, okay? As in not Jews. And behold, another, or excuse me, another Gentile, we might say, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. Okay, listen to how Jesus responds to this Canaanite woman and then start thinking about how, what it might have in common with how he responded to the centurion. He did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In so many words, he's saying, It's not right for me to take what is only for Israel and throw it to the Gentiles. Okay, help you understand what he's actually saying there. It's not right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Genius. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now let me help you see these two stories in parallel and how they're connected. It seems as if an outsider to God's chosen people, okay, those not of the house of Israel, when they ask something of Christ... When they ask something of Jesus, he forces them in some ways to, first of all, acknowledge Israel's privilege. If he turns this thing around from the centurion and says, shall I come and heal him? Implying, shall I, a Jewish peasant, come and heal you, your, your Gentile servant, you Gentile soldier? Shall I heal your daughter, Canaanite woman, in some ways it's a test of commitment and faith for the Gentiles. 
And here's how the centurion passes the test. We know the Canaanite woman passed the test. And Jesus said, great is your faith. Let's see what the centurion has to say. Let's see how he handles this test of, shall I come and heal your servant? He says two things, really, that we're going to engage for the rest of the morning or at least later in the morning. He says two things. First of all, I'm not worthy. And second of all, only say the word. But I want you to think first about what he might have said. This guy's a centurion, a manly man, a man that's leading soldiers, an accomplished man. He could have said, when Jesus phrases that as a question, shall I come and heal him? He might have said, hey, buddy, do you know who I am? Do you have any idea how much authority I have here in Capernaum and in Rome, for that matter, in the Roman Empire, for that matter? Do you know how many centurions are appointed to a, a, a cohort and then a legion? <laughs> Do you know how few of us there are in the Roman army? And then here you're putting a test to me? Do you know how hard and maybe even as embarrassing it is for me, Jewish peasant, to ask this of you and you're going to make this even harder for me? That's how he might have handled the test. But instead of doing that, he says, I am not worthy just say the word. Let's consider his first statement. I am not worthy. Instead of objecting to the test, he acknowledges his unworthiness before Jesus. He recognizes it's inappropriate, first of all, to even ask a Jew to step in a Gentile's home for they're going to be considered unclean. But it's bigger than that. He's saying, I'm not worthy to have you even grace my home. We're going to look at that in greater detail later. But the other thing he says is only say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For my words carry authority, so yours must carry even more. Now I want to compare his response to a few other people. I want you to just listen to this for a minute. You, you have kind of a snapshot into how he responded with those two phrases. I'm not worthy just say the word. Now compare this to another story. We're going to see what Jesus has to say about his response here in a minute. But I want to acquaint you with a couple of other stories. A couple of other healings, specifically healings of Israelites, not Gentiles. And I want you to compare notes. Listen to this one that's just across the page in chapter 9. In verse 18, while he was was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Now this passage or this excerpt does not tell us who this guy is. The parallel accounts in the other gospels tell us that this is a man named Jairus, who is a ruler in the synagogue. We're talking about an, an Israelite. We're talking about God's people here. A ruler, in fact, of God's people. He knelt before him, that looks good so far, and he says, my daughter has just died, but Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Moving down to verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all the district. Okay, it's hard maybe to see the difference between the two healings right now, but let me point out something. Let me point out to you what this ruler from the synagogue asks of Jesus. He says, come and lay your hand on her. 
He kneels before, that's a good sign. It looks like there's some profound faith there, but what's different between him and the centurion? He says, can, can you come to my house and lay your hand on my daughter? While the centurion just says, just say the word. I'm not even worthy to have you in my home. Just say the word. Let's look at another little snapshot. I'll share, share this story with you. You can turn there if you'd like or, or not. It's in the book of John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. This is another ruler. So he came again to Canaan and Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. We don't know what sort of official it was, but we might presume, since they're not identified as a Roman official, that they're likely a Jewish official. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, you can read the rest of that story on your own if you'd like, but I want you to see what it has in common with that other request. Come down and lay your hands on my sick friend or my sick family member or my sick servant. Come be present in that moment and lay your hand on them. Come into my home. Contrast it with the centurion. I'm not worthy to have you grace my presence. A. And B. Just say the word. You don't need to take another step, Jesus. Just say the word. Some of you are likely familiar with the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Something that's interesting of both Lazarus, both of Lazarus' Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, both of them said to Jesus once uh, Lazarus had died, they both said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's interesting that those three, all three of those stories, what they have in common is this concept that come on over, Jesus, and you're going to have to come on over to fix my problem. Contrast that with the centurion. It just says, just say the word. And oh, by the way, I'm not even worthy of your presence. So let's see in verse 10, 11, and 12 what Jesus says about the centurion's faith. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. We just looked at some examples. With no one in Israel have I found anyone ask a healing of me that said, Oh, by the way, I'm not worthy of your presence. And just say the word. You don't even need to take another step. Nowhere else in Israel have I found that kind of faith that I found and heard from this Roman citizen, Roman soldier, Roman centurion. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Gospels, there aren't a lot of pictures of interactions with Gentile sick people or Gentile needy people. But the ones that we have... The few that we have that involve a healing of a Gentile show profound faith. I think of the healing of the ten lepers. All of them were healed, yet only one of them came back to thank Jesus. And it happened to be a Samaritan, a Gentile in their eyes. 
The Gentile faith is an interesting part of the story. And this gospel here, a gospel of Matthew specifically, who's for ancient Jews, who was written or that was written for ancient Jews, would have thought this scandalous. Faith in the Gentiles? What a crazy development. In some ways, they would be ignoring what was prophesied through Isaiah in chapter 56 that we'll look at in the supper later. They're ignoring what's been prophesied by the prophets for hundreds of years that faith would go to the Gentiles, that the promise made to Abraham that through you, Abraham, will all families of the earth be blessed, not just the Jews. They ignored that or didn't hear that. So this, these pictures of faith in Gentiles would have been a very surprising twist. And as we read it as a room full of Gentiles, we ought to be really excited about it and blessed by it especially fellow Gentiles. But then there's the sons of the kingdom. It just mentioned in passing here what Jesus says about the sons of the kingdom. These are those who expected salvation based on their descent from Abraham. Just because they're related to Abraham, they're expecting that they're going to be saved. These, Jesus says, will experience darkness, weeping, and tooth-grinding agony. And in verse 13, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed, you Gentile. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This humble centurion trusted it only took a word. And sure enough, when God speaks, stuff happens. Now, this is a beautiful story of faith that makes Jesus marvel. And we're going to consider just two things about it. But first, I want to just take you back to this spiritual gift series. Over the course of the summer, we've considered service, teaching, exhortation, administration, giving, leadership, hospitality, evangelism, mercy, and then today, faith. And one thing that each of these spiritual gifts have in common is that they were gifts given to the church that some have in special measure, but all should have in some measure. All should have some measure of these spiritual gifts. Now, of these, of this list, faith is more so than any other, something that all of us have in common, for it's what makes us Christian. So we're not talking about something this morning that's just for a few of you. We're talking about something this morning that's for every single person in this room if you call yourself a Christian. We're studying some faith matters from a centurion whose faith made Jesus marvel. So given that, given that we're talking to everyone this morning with some of us who may have a unique and profound dose of that, but all of us have some measure of it, let's look at two things that we can learn from this story. First of all, Faith that makes Jesus marvel is humble. We're just going to consider the two things that he said this morning, just for these next few minutes. First of all, he said, I'm not worthy. And he's identifying the fact that this man is humble. A Roman citizen, first of all, to appeal to a Jew for anything would have been out of the ordinary. And borderline to other Romans, inappropriate. Take it beyond that. A Roman soldier is appealing. And consider the soldiers of our day, the military men and women of our day carry with them a lot of pride. 
I have friends that I served with that are doing this push-up challenge. Some of you may have seen some of that on Facebook, this 22 days of 22 push-ups. What they're doing that for is because apparently 21 or 22 service members, veterans, take their lives every single day by suicide. And I wonder if part of that is because we're a proud bunch and we don't want to say, hey, I need some help. I don't imagine being a service member or a soldier in that day was very much different. Fueled by pride, fueled by bravado, yet this soldier humbled himself and asked Jesus for help. And then beyond that, we're talking about a commander of all things. A manly, manly man. Yet this man's faith was not hindered by his identity as a Roman citizen or by his bravado and pride as a Roman soldier and commander. I found an interesting ancient personality test. I found like a, an ancient record that when this guy took the disc profile test, you didn't know this has been around for 2,000 years. He was a DI. He's like a super high DI, like off the charts DI. Like he just commands people and he's an influencer. He takes charge and he's an influencer. He's a high DI. He also took the Smalley test that has like the lion and the, and the, the golden retriever and those guys. He's a lion, turns out. Ancient historians have recorded it's amazing. This guy's an unlikely candidate to come to a Jewish peasant and say, hey, can you help me? Can you please help me? But this guy humbled himself to the point where he came to Jesus and asked Jesus for help with his servant. It's interesting, too, that you can take a proud man that loves someone. Proud people can love people. So he could love his servant. But what shows us that he's more than proud, but in fact humble, is he approaches Jesus not for his own behalf, not for his own sickness, but for the sickness of another. He approached Jesus and humbled himself by asking and acknowledging that his accomplishments and status are nothing compared to Christ's authority. It made me wonder if he would count all his accomplishments and achievements as rubbish. I share a passage with you from the book of Philippians. I shared with you that I only had really two other places that I really wanted you to turn this morning. This is one of those places. I want you to turn there. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to wait on you. I'll wait and I hear pages turning. I want you to see this. I want you to see what gospel humility looks like. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. This is Paul writing to the Philippian church. And in verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Okay, we're talking about another guy that's quite accomplished, like the centurion. This guy would have a lot of reason for pride, Paul. Paul went to what we would call the Harvard of Judaism. He studied under a guy named Gamaliel. This guy was like the go-to guy for Judaism. This guy was accomplished. And here's what he says about his accomplishments. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He starts this list of virtue. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. 
As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Sounds like an accomplished guy that counts his accomplishments as nothing as he kneels at the feet of Jesus. He has no authority before Christ. He bows before Christ. The centurion's faith is a great tutor that the ground is quite level at Christ's feet. Whether you're a Roman centurion or a Pharisee who studied under Gamaliel or whether you're a Samaritan leper, or whether you're a poor Canaanite woman, or whether you're a blind man that has no way to make any money, or whether you're a Jewish ruler like Jairus, or whether you're rich or poor, all are equally in need of this poor Jewish man who could do what money couldn't buy and authority couldn't accomplish. And it turns out that we're all beggars at his feet. It's a great tutor in gospel humility. The church is just a gathering of maybe the accomplished and the struggling. It's a really level platform in here, really a level ground. Where some of you, man, you feel like, I'm just trying to make it from day to day. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep it in the middle of the road. I'm just trying to hold down a job. I'm just trying to find a good job. I'm just trying to keep my marriage together. I'm just trying to keep my life together. And then others of you may be running businesses. You may be accomplished in many ways. You may be a, a, a contemporary version of the centurion a manly man accomplishing a lot. But at the feet of Jesus, it's very level for every single one of us. And gospel humility, the kind of humility that leads to a faith that makes Jesus marvel, recognizes that the ultimate authority is Jesus. That we can say together, we are not worthy. It's a key component of faith in recognizing your unworthiness to be graced by Christ's presence. Whether you're accomplished or not, an unworthiness. Faith like this survives promotion. Let me explain that. Faith like this survives success. See, I know some of you, I, I see it over and over again as I counsel and I come alongside and I meet people where you're going through some sort of crisis and maybe you're that one I described that's just trying to keep it in the middle of the road, just trying to keep, you know, just trying to keep your job, just trying to pay your bills, just trying to kind of survive. Yet you have this big, deep faith and trust in Christ and maybe that need connects to that deep faith and trust in Christ. I'm glad to see it, but there's part of me that's wondering, will you still have that deep faith and trust in Christ when you're promoted out of that need? The gospel humility we're talking about today, as the, as the centurion proves, survives the promotion. It survives the healing. 
See, many of us can draw on faith and call out to the Lord and look like really faithful when we're sick. But can you be just as needy when you're well? Should you be? Gospel humility says so. It says you should be. This kind of faith, this fueled by gospel humility, survives marital reconciliation. When your marriage gets sorted out, if there ever really such, is such a thing and it's just flying on autopilot, <laughs> uh, maybe that exists. But let's imagine that it does. True faith that's fueled by humility that recognizes his authority over all things survives that. And you continue on needy. This kind of faith that's fueled by this kind of humility survives financial stability as well. Once you get that paycheck that starts to provide where you start to have a little bit of put away but a little bit to put away you still need him that's the kind of humility we're talking about this morning faith like this does not wane but continues to grow with each year realizing we are not worthy of his holy presence in our lives that's part of faith we are not worthy of his holy presence in our lives on our worst day or on our best day. When we're a centurion or when we're a poor Canaanite. When we're a Jewish ruler or when we're a Samaritan leper. We're not worthy. Faith that makes Jesus marvel is humble, kneeling on level ground knowing we are not worthy. The second thing that this centurion said to Jesus, he said, only say the word. The second thing that's true about this faith that we're looking at today, at least in this small meal on faith, is that faith that makes Jesus marvel trusts. It trusts absolutely. It's humble and it trusts. This guy, the centurion, walked in the authority of the Roman Empire and he knew full well when he said something that it's as good as done. When he commanded his troops or his servants to do something, it's as good as done. This man understood authority, yet this man came to Jesus recognizing that his authority does what no one else's authority can accomplish. He has limitless authority. He's not bound even by distance. He's not bound by time. He's not bound even by medicine. Just say the word, Jesus. You don't need to come down to my house. I'm not worthy of you gracing my presence, and you don't need to take a step. Just say the word. He owns healing, and it happens instantaneously with just a word if he wants. Faith that makes Jesus marvel recognizes his limitless authority. And simply trusts in him. It just trusts. It just does. You get the sense that the way this guy handles himself, the way he responds to the test, you almost get the sense that if Jesus hadn't healed his servant or wouldn't heal his servant for some reason, that he'd trust him still. Let's look at Paul and see if Paul might give us a clue. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to land the plane with this passage and this thought. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. People have, have thought over the years maybe it was a vision issue. Because sometimes he signs his letters and he says, see with what large handwriting I'm using. Uh, He had to have what we would call, or what was called in that day, an amanuensis in a lot of cases. It helped him write his letters. A scribe that's writing, writing for him as he speaks. He may have had a vision problem. It may have been an anxiety issue. It may have been... um, He may have been crippled in some way. We don't know what in the world it was. And it's delightfully, wonderfully ambiguous because you can insert your problem in there. And you can trust that a God that is good will allow and in fact work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, even a thorn. This thorn is dear to me and our family because we've had to deal with visual impairment in two of our three children's eyes. And it's a lifelong issue for them, and it has been a, um, at least in our case, since they've been born, an issue that we've had to deal with and continue to deal with. And after laying hands on them, we asked the elders to lay hands and pray over them and pray for healing. And after the Lord did not heal them, we trusted at that point that that's a thorn that he's left with our children and left with us to walk through. So it's a delightfully ambiguous thorn that you can insert your problem into. And Paul says, I, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am, I am strong. You can hear Paul saying in so many words, I trust him. I asked him for help and he didn't heal me. He didn't fix my problem, but I trust him. Even with the thorn. We don't know how the the centurion would have responded if Jesus said, I'm not going to heal your servant. But you almost get the sense that he would trust him still. Because faith, it seems, trusts him in the mess Faith trusts him through the mess. And faith trusts him, should he not liberate from, you, from, from the mess? With the mess. Faith trusts Jesus. Faith that causes Jesus to marvel is first of all humble. And secondly, it's relentlessly trusting. God doesn't marvel at much, but God the Son marveled at the faith of this man. I've thought about this all week and tried to imagine how could Jesus marvel at something that according to Ephesians 2 was a gift from Jesus. Ephesians 2 tells us that faith is a gift in the first place. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The salvation is a gift and faith itself is a gift. And I'm trying to figure out how in the world would Jesus marvel at something that he gifted to the centurion in the first place? And the only illustration that I think I could come up with is this. Over the years of 
20 plus years of marriage and five years of dating in front of that, there have been a number of occasions where I bought jewelry for Christy, purchased just a necklace that I thought, I think that's going to be beautiful in my wife. And when I give her something like that and she wears it and I enjoy it, the fact that I gave it to her doesn't diminish the enjoyment or the beauty, but actually enhances it. It looks good on her. And I picked it out for her. And it makes me think about what Jesus, what gladness he must have for his church at Cross Point Fellowship that we stopped down for a morning to enjoy faith as he's graced us with it. As he's placed it around our undeserving, unworthy necks. I hope he's been blessed as we've considered a good gift that's been given, first of all, to a centurion, to a Canaanite woman, into a room full of undeserving Gentiles. Let's pray. God, there's so much to say about faith. There's so much to consider about faith, Lord. I just pray that this morning would just be a simple meal. Be one that we enjoy together, one that equips us together to understand that faith, first of all, is humble. That faith just does not carry our status to Jesus. However accomplished or not, Lord, we stand on very level ground at Christ's feet. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, however accomplished they may feel, whatever obstacles that may be in their way to coming to Christ's feet, that this morning would put those obstacles in perspective, that there are no obstacles at all. However elevated we might feel due to accomplishment or status, that we climb up to his feet. And that it's level there. And Lord, I pray that too, we as a people this morning can enjoy together what trust looks like. What it means to believe Jesus and to trust him in the mess, through the mess, and even with the mess. Lord, I'm thankful that we can bring our needs to you. We can bring our thorns to you and that you hear our prayers. Lord, I pray that you would grow our trust so that we trust you even when it seems like it's a no or a not yet. You're a good God for giving us this story, Lord. We've enjoyed getting to know this man, this Canaanite this morning. Most of all, getting to enjoy our Savior. We love you, Lord. We trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I thought this morning it would be fitting for us to consider this Isaiah prophecy as we distribute the elements. I'll share this passage with you and then I would like to, for us to distribute the elements and take the supper and to enjoy this specifically. In Isaiah chapter 56, beginning in verse 3, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, this is a room full of us right now, a room full of Gentiles, 
to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, to these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares... I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's us. Now, we can enjoy the faith of the centurion, but as we take the supper together, what I want to enjoy is that there was faith in a centurion. Let's just marvel together at that, that there's faith in a Canaanite woman, that there's faith in a Samaritan leper, that there's faith in someone other than Israel as he's blessed us, as he prophesied. By inviting the nations to the table. As we distribute the elements this morning, let's marvel together and let's think together. We're not worthy of this table. We're not worthy. And let's trust Him together. Let's distribute the elements. I realize that some of what, what you hear from Crosspoint may be different from what you may hear in some other contexts. And I, I get that. I'm thankful for other churches. We pray for other churches every Sunday morning. I forgot my juice. Yeah, somebody grab me, grab me some juice. Kellen, hook me up. Hook a brother up. Um, and I realize a message is saying you're not worthy. You're not worthy. Oh, cool. Thank you. Sorry, Kellen. Too too slow, man. Sorry. <laughs> you can have another one. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Um, I realize a message is saying, man, you're not worthy. That may not be a real popular message because I I get that. There's a case to be made from the Bible that you are a special little snowflake and that God has a special plan for your life. Okay, there is a case to be made, but it's not a real strong case. I mean, it's not the biggest part of the story. Okay, it's really not. And I I don't want to pour cold water on that. If that's what you're telling your children, man, that's great. But you need to tell them the rest of the story too, that you're a nasty Gentile that's not included in this storyline except by the grace of God. I mean, right? Let's be really honest. We're a bunch of Gentiles. We're unclean. Unclean. Don't, you can't even come in my house, Jew, or you're going to be unclean. We're not supposed to be at this table. It's a grace and a mercy that he's invited us to it. And with full rights and privileges, mind you. Man, we would do well to be thinking like that Canaanite woman. At least the dogs get some scraps from the table. He says, your faith is great, woman. Yeah, your, your daughter is healed instantaneously. We would be doing well to think like this centurion. My home does not deserve Jesus. I don't deserve you in my life and my family. I don't deserve to be woven into this story. That's not saying you're a piece of trash and that you have no value. It's just saying we, we've been invited into something that that is a blessing and a shock. We should be shocked with it from time to time. And this morning, as we consider the faith of a Canaanite, or the uh, Canaanite too, and the centurion, man, we should be in cahoots with them. Saying, golly, what a great story that we've been invited into this. That we've been invited to this table. Luke jokes with me about faking y'all out. I start, like everybody at home, that's you. (laughs) I'm not going to do that to you, but I was about to raise it. Oh. But man, let's together, okay? See, I'm not taking it just yet. 
Let's together in faith marvel with humility, real gospel humility. Marvel that we're part of this storyline, that he's brought us into it. Let's marvel together and take and eat. And let's trust him together with everything in us. Lord, give us more trust. We trust, yet help our lack of trust. Let's together ask him, Lord, grow our trust in you. Our neediness that survives promotion, that survives healing, that survives marital conflict, that survives all those problems that seem to be such a great escort to you. Grow in us a trust that moves beyond that, that continues needy and dependent. Let's take and drink in faith. Let me pray. God, we marvel together that you've invited us to this table as you marvel at faith in a centurion. Lord, we are blessed, we are thankful, and we trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's continue in song.